Hi, Val here, and this is my podcast, The Kalahari Diaries. I live in one of Africa's most remote wilderness areas. Nature and wildlife is my biggest passion. I hand-dressed Serga the lioness and walked the Kalahari to join her on her hunts. I work in tourism and nature conservation. For fun, but also for wildlife monitoring, I fly anything that gets me into the air. I live in an old caravan. The next supermarket is a two and a half hour drive away on sandy and bumpy roads. There is no cell reception anywhere nearby and the only comms is an extremely slow, extremely expensive satellite internet connection. I am Valentin Grüner and this is my podcast, The Kalahari Diaries. Right, here we go. It's the first podcast with The Kalahari Diaries. And since I just mentioned that I live in the middle of the bush and run around with a line, work in nature conservation, maybe it's appropriate to start the first podcast simply with my story on how I ended up here and yeah, how a 20-year-old German kid moved to Africa and got into this strange, unique life. To start with, we have to kind of jump back quite a bit. I grew up in Germany. Sorry, boring. But I think even for German standards, my life was not exactly standard. I was raised on a small sort of countryside village just on the on the edge of a of a massive lake lake constance in, in southern germany and my parents worked in a home for mentally handicapped children where we were living sort of just as in a small extension of the home for the handicapped kids the handicapped kids would actually live there all the time it wasn't like a daycare thing it was their home and that's where i grew up and it was kind of on the outskirts of this actually smaller village on the boundary of a, of a beautiful small nature reserve on this massive stunning lake and I literally grew up just with this beautiful surrounding it it kind of had this space and nature around me that I've I guess always loved probably because of the upbringing and my parents had me grow up fairly close to animals at the home itself there was always a horse for the kids to as, as part of their therapy we had a few sheep the the kids would actually go out and do haying and collecting fruit, making juice and all these things. And I got to join that and be part of it just growing up, aside from obviously going to, to a normal school at the same time. And I just loved that life. It was my, my playground, like a massive playground. There was no traffic to speak of. We had all the freedom in the world. And on top of that, I loved animals, including the horse and the sheep and all the other stuff that belonged to the home and was part of the therapy work for the children. I actually ended up having all kinds of pets, raising orphaned wildlife and all kinds of things. And it, it literally ranged from the normal rabbits, cats, dogs, but included a ferret, a chinchilla. I had two raccoons. I was breeding Greek tortoises. I was breeding African gray parrots. And I ended up raising all kinds of orphaned animals, pretty much anything that would come along. I nearly tamed a fox in the garden of of a, of a house that we used to go to on the weekends not just nearly it actually came and, and ate almost from my hand it was like 10 centimeters away from me yeah we hand read all kinds of orphan birds that fall out of the nest and be brought to us somehow all of those just ended up flying back into the wild when they were bigger if they made it through quite a few of them were crows i loved raising the crows that sit on my shoulder and actually stick around for quite a long time throughout the winters we usually have hedgehogs and like small ones that couldn't make the, the winter actually and we'd raise them through the winter to release them again in the spring when they were nice and fat so that they'd make it through the next season. And 
yeah, animals was always that big, big passion. And there was never a doubt about any any of that in my life that I'm going to work with animals. And the dream was always wildlife. I had a love for pretty much any animal that I could possibly come across. But the big dream was to work with wildlife. And the big dream was Africa. This Africa idea obviously was, was planted through images, books, just the outstanding animals, lions, leopards, cheetahs, rhinos, elephants, the whole lot. It fascinated me from an extremely small age. One thing I remember very, very clearly is that one of my aunts, my mom's sister, she actually went on a safari in Africa when I was still a young kid. And I can't remember, I don't know, four or five years old. And once she returned the family met at the grandparents' home in northern Germany, so quite far. It was like a big excursion for us to go there. And a big event of being there that time was that there was a, a picture show of the trip. And it wasn't like today with social media where everything's shared. It was just that moment when we get to see those images of Africa. And if I remember correctly, she went to the Serengeti and it blew my mind. And that evening we were allowed to watch television, which was Serengeti Must Not Die. And it, yeah, it was definitely from that moment on that I said, I will live in Africa when I'm an adult. And that idea never really changed and never got out of my head. Now, the first idea of how to get there and how to work with wildlife growing up for me was simply to become a vet, because that means working with animals and then moving to Africa to save wildlife. The dream never really changed. And school was more like a secondary thing in my life. I loved my freedom. I loved the lake. I loved windsurfing. Anything else that had to do with the lake, I just loved it. And I loved nature around me and all of that. But on top of that, you get into teenage years. I loved parties. And yeah, in the back of my mind was this, I'm going to become a vet after high school. And then I'll go to Africa. But in the meantime, I enjoyed my youth. Yeah, and somehow, miraculously, I actually managed to pass high school. And now I sort of had the ticket to out into the world, start studying, do my thing. And it was also, I guess, my ticket to actually kind of now I leave home. Money seemed a general concern. And through a friend at school, a classmate and an exchange student that had been there, and that classmate actually traveling to Canada for the second time, of all places, I ended up going to Canada for almost a year with the aim to work there and earn money. That did work out for me. I ended up getting a job in the oil sands, not at all the nature conservation animal stuff that I wanted to get into, but I was 19 years old. It paid the money that I needed to get my life started independently. And yeah, it wasn't the best time of my life. Hard work and not many days off. I really just worked there. I wish I could have seen more of that beautiful, stunning country, but I didn't. I spent a winter in one of its coldest areas in Fort McMurray in northern Alberta. I doubt that I ever want to go back there. Definitely not in winter. It is a stunning place in summer, aside from the mosquitoes that are absolutely terrible. Once I returned back to Germany from Canada, I had money for the first time in my life. And also, I'd actually been outside Europe for the first time in my life. I decided it's a good idea just to take a few months, go to Africa. Southern Africa always had that, I don't know, was always set in my mind that that's where it's going to be. And I figured now I have some money and let me go there and just check it out for myself. Because the idea was never necessarily to become a vet in Germany simply because I wanted to study that to work with lions and elephants and rhinos and all of this stuff. So 
a naive dream to to save wildlife, help wildlife, and really not any idea why I wanted to become a vet to do that. That was just my only way of approaching that dream. And it was probably a good idea to decide that Namibia, just as a destination before university, is a step to do. And so I did. I ended up booking one of the animal wildlife sort of sanctuary places that I could find on the internet. And I can't lie, they advertised on their website that there were lion cubs that just recently arrived and all kinds of things. So uh, for me, it, it just looked like the perfect thing. Also, it kind of fitted into the budget traveling, yeah, backpacker style financial plan. So it, it seemed ideal. I think I booked about a month or two something like that and just headed off no idea what I was really doing but off I went the first weeks literally felt like paradise you arrive on these this massive private property which I think at that stage seems like the biggest open area that as a German kid I'd ever seen aside from traveling through Canada where I was too busy working to ever realize what the hell I'm actually running around in. But now you're on this, what's actually called a private ranch here. And at the center of that was a beautiful lodge type setup with a small camp next door where we could live around the lodge where animal enclosures all over the place with all these fascinating animals, cheetahs, lions, leopards, baboons, and you name it. There was a lot of African wildlife put there all under this sanctuary idea. And I loved it. It felt like heaven. I thought, oh my God, I'm so close to this. I'm supposed to help here because I booked this volunteering experience. Of course, you pay money, but you think you're doing something great. And I enjoyed it so much. There was a bunch of young people, sort of like-minded people, having the time of their life, enjoying themselves sort of mainly just petting animals all day long and feeding them and cleaning them a bit. But a lot of it is just sitting with the animals. But it was quite wild. It wasn't like Europe. It was a lot less controlled and it just felt fantastic. I actually ended up staying there a bit longer and managing that aspect of the guest program together with a few other people. So not as a paying guest, I I ended up being like a, a project coordinator. And I enjoyed that like crazy, but... Yeah, to put it simply, it just didn't feel proper and it didn't feel right in the end to me. I wanted to do something different and it wasn't that. That's all I knew. I didn't really know anything else. So that experience in Namibia showed me a lot about Africa. We worked with veterinarians that were there very rarely throughout this eight, nine months that I actually spent there. And I got to speak to them a little bit and I realized that they just come in on a small occasion to work with wildlife in this sanctuary setup. But other than that, they're pretty much at home, you know, doing cattle and horses and sheep and somebody's dog and cat, just like anywhere else. And that's not what I wanted to do. My fascination was more with the wild animals. And that is something that we just never really got to to do anything with, with this whole experience in Namibia. We had these wild species sitting in cages but we never learned or got to see anything that's really wild and outside and just living there aside from a few antelope running around in the farm so i guess that's where kind of the thinking started that maybe becoming a veterinarian is not exactly the right thing and although i had no other ideas into like what my career would probably 
become, I simply decided to not apply for a university for veterinary school anymore. But in any case, I had to go back to Germany because in a way I'd been trying to not do my military duty to until that stage. But in order to sort of finalize what you have to do in Germany, and unfortunately at that stage I still had to serve my nine months I had to get back and get that over with. I refused to join the army and you could choose at that stage instead whether you want to do social work and I ended up getting a placement at one of the few places in Germany where you could actually do that with animals instead of with people at a hospital or something like that. And I worked at one of Europe's larger mustelid conservation centers in their one of their sort of educational parks and I worked in the animal caretaking and public education side of things the park was mostly focused on otters but they had all kinds of other mustelid species there martens badgers and and a whole bunch of things and i really have to admit it was probably the first time in my life despite having spent so much time with animals raising animals having had contact with animals but it was the first time i actually learned something about wildlife so in order to be put into the animal care and public education side at this specific placement where I had to work we actually had to join classes in the beginning pass tests written tests and in the end a practical test in order to be able to work with these animals and those classes were the first time where I was told just a few simple facts about wildlife conservation and interesting things with animal species yeah so just to make one example about an animal and how our understanding of them can help us so much to live with it instead of just having problems with it is the marten. The marten is such a cute furry animal, but it causes massive damages on vehicles. For example, in Germany alone in 2017, there were 214,000 recorded incidents that amounted to about 72 million euros in damage. Uh, these numbers are from the Association of German Insurance Companies. Now, I guess anybody who would have a problem with a marten that has caused damage to the vehicle would simply like that somebody would come and remove the animal and relocate it somewhere else. We obviously don't want it to be killed and so on. That kind of seems like the obvious choice. But let's just have a look at the actual reason why this is happening. So a marten may not do anything to a vehicle for years and years, but it would probably have been living there the whole time. If you are in an area where there are martens generally around, it's likely that you are part of one martin's territory wherever you have your home and your vehicle is parked outside now it's part of that home now after many years of living there perfectly happy and without any issues all of a sudden in the morning there's a problem with the car now this can happen at your home but it likely happens when you're away from home and the reason is simply if you're spending a night somewhere else your vehicle is parked potentially in another martin's territory and in order to prove a point the martin who is resident at this location will simply come and destroy anything he can just to show the intruder that he obviously thinks just arrived here because the vehicle marked by another martin is standing in the wrong territory and he will go for all the little bits rubber pieces brake lines fl different fluid lines cables two of the insulation and so on and it can cause terrible damage in a worst case scenario the brakes don't work somebody doesn't realize starts driving and at the next traffic light you bump into the vehicle in front of you because you can't stop or even worse 
So now it's a bad day. You have to bring the vehicle to the repair shop. You get everything repaired. You get back home. And the next morning you have the same problem. The car won't start. There's a problem with the electronics or the brake fluid has been leaking again. And guess what? What happened is the vehicle marked by another Martin just arrived in your own territory. But now it's not marked by the Martin who lives there at your home. So same thing happens. He will now destroy whatever the previous Martin in the night before has, has marked there and make his point. So the vehicle is not something that the Martin wants to chew or likes to destroy. He's simply just doing what they're supposed to do. He's using his personal um, behavior to prove a point and defend its home. Now, the easiest way to avoid this, especially when it starts happening, is to simply wash the vehicle and specifically wash the engine, get the engine washed properly. And that can be done if you know you're spending a night somewhere else, somewhere where that you know there's likely Martins around, or maybe the friends that you're staying with actually can tell you that they have one. In that case, that can prevent the problem entirely. There are other ways, like protecting your car from underneath, by putting wires there and all like, like mesh wire and things like that. And they actually make electric setups like an electric fence type thing and, and so on. And ultrasound that can apparently distress the animal and make it not go to the vehicle. But all of these things are not as efficient as simply washing the engine if we know about the problem. And removing the animal and relocating it definitely doesn't make much sense since if you are in an area where martens exist, what will happen is simply that you will have another Martin move in because all you do is create an empty home if the Martin gets removed. So simple, easy way to get over it is simply to wash the engine. And I think this shows very nicely how a simple understanding of the behavior of the animal can show and change our behavior in dealing with it and actually enables us to potentially live with that animal instead of having to get rid of them. During that time I spent in Namibia, I wasn't the only animal enthusiast that was at this specific ranch. I actually made quite a few friends who had similar ideas, who all ended up staying at the place and we were coordinating this, this program together. And we had this dream of moving to Africa, starting our own project and yeah, it was. I, we were all pretty young. It was a pretty crazy idea, but we were we were very enthusiastic about it. And yeah, some everybody went back home, had to do their things. But me and one good friend actually ended up sort of pursuing ideas of starting our own project. Now, this guy who was from Denmark actually studied sort of into the business direction. I was more the animal enthusiast, good with hands on things and and stuff. And we ended up deciding that we're a pretty good team and we should do this. So during the time that I had at this Masterlit Conservation Center with the otters and the martens and the badgers, I spent quite a bit of time on Google because I actually had no idea which country in Southern Africa I would pick if I would want to move there. And I don't think I ever did much research on any of that, aside from having seen on television that there are lions, elephants, leopards and so on in these areas. Google and Wikipedia turned out to be pretty helpful and I found that Botswana is actually an amazing place. I have heard about the Okavanga Delta before but Botswana was yeah, as a country actually something new to me. The Kalahari Desert however was also a term that I was definitely familiar with from wildlife documentaries and other stuff that I'd been probably watching at some stage. So Botswana and Wikipedia pretty much 
to sum it up, said it's a fairly large country with an extremely low density of human population and massive areas set aside for wildlife protection, such as the Okavango Delta. And large areas, some of the world's largest parks in the Kalahari region in Botswana. And I decided to go there. And my business partner or friend at that stage from Denmark agreed that that's a good choice. And I think just a few weeks after I finished work at the Mastelit Conservation Center, I was on my way to Botswana. After arriving in Botswana and spending a few weeks just figuring things out, I ended up registering a company pretty quickly. The friend of mine from Denmark joined for some time. We spent time together going on road trips. Okay, I've got Serga actually joining me here in the background. I don't know if anyone can hear that. Yeah, that was Serga joining joining our first podcast. It's nighttime here. I'm sitting in the middle of of nowhere in a sort of converted shipping container and Serga has a has an enclosure just nearby so I can hear her roaring. Anyhow, so myself and the Danish friend decided to actually start a company together that we can use to apply for permits through and run our our ideas in Botswana with. And we had this guy from Holland who was prepared to invest money to purchase a larger property like a private ranch that we could turn into a wildlife sanctuary type of thing. And that just seemed like the perfect sort of course of action because obviously the money that I earned in my year in Canada was definitely not enough to just stay in Africa and start a big business here or anything like that. It was just enough pretty much to get me here and that's probably where it ended. Through the business we registered, I ended up applying for work and residence permits in Botswana and during that time I had to leave the country so once the application was in I had to leave and basically wait for an answer so that I could return to Botswana and I wasn't really prepared for that but I had a little bit of money left over from my time in Canada and pretty much the last funds I spent on booking a few courses that were actually wildlife related stuff in South Africa so I went uh, some of the courses were in Kruger National Park, some of it in private reserves somewhere else in the country. And I did three courses. The first one was basically my my entry license into professional nature guiding. The second course was called a game ranger course. A game ranger is not actually the guy who drives a tourist around. A game ranger is the guy who looks after the ecosystem, who's actually there to manage the wildlife side of the park doesn't have much to do with the tourism in it and it was a fascinating course where we got to see both a very beautiful pristine area in Kruger National Park and a private reserve where you can definitely see different management management practices being applied we learned a lot about animals a lot of a lot of stuff it sort of built up massively on what I learned in the in the Mastelit Conservation Center and then 
what I initially thought was just going to be something to bridge time, which was a trekking course, because I had no idea what to expect out of just running around somewhere reading tracks in the bush. I, yeah, and I don't know, just footprints in the sand or something. But I had a bit of time left. I wasn't uh, allowed to come back to Botswana yet. My permits were not ready. And I did the trekking course. And it turned out to be actually one of the best experiences in my life. I love reading tracks, going out in the bush in the morning. It's like reading a newspaper. And if you go out with somebody who's good at it and you don't know what's going on, it literally seems like magic. In that couple of weeks learning about it, I think I got to crack a little bit of the magic and actually found out that I had some sort of talent for it and absolutely loved it. And it has stayed with me since then. I've always been in the bush. Trekking turned into, well, till today, one of the tools I use on a daily basis. And yeah, like somebody else reads the newspaper. When I walk out in the morning, I, I read the newspaper just around our home or wherever I am, even while driving, just by seeing what signs the wildlife has left in the sand and on the vegetation around us. My permits finally got approved, which was major news. I was pretty happy. The first years where I can actually legally go to Botswana, do my work, although I can't actually get proper jobs. I can work for my company, try to set that up. And I ended up living in northern Botswana, just on the southern edge of the Okavango Delta in a town called Maun. And I have to say it was, again, one of the most amazing years to just be in this community, which is full of people that are extremely helpful it is nothing like germany where i came from where everyone is actually fairly isolated although you have people everywhere around you this place so everybody knows each other and i'm not actually joking even if you don't know people that well but you get stuck somewhere 400 kilometers away from mound in the bush and you manage to make a phone call through to town somebody will get into the car and pick you up and they'll drop you at the next bar buy a bunch of beers, won't even want money for fuel. It's really an amazing place. The stuff that happens that people do for you, especially couch couch surfing pretty much for yeah my two, two and a half years that I lived in Mount. And I got all kinds of little peace jobs here and there, ended up driving boats a little bit on the river leading up to the Okavango Delta. I was working, helping out on safari trips and I got to start working on a whole bunch of research excursions all over Botswana. So that kind of work got me pretty much set up with getting to know the country, getting to know a few people. And the time that you spent in Mount was pretty much socializing at one of the local pubs every evening. And that's where I met most of the people that I still know today and that are the contacts that got me to where I am with this life in Botswana today. Yeah, so this life in Mount for a few years and getting to do the different trips, whether it was research or safari with guests or any with anything I could help out on, it it opened my eyes to a lot of things. It got me talking with a hell of a lot of people. And I think for the first time during those years, I started understanding to a certain extent the bigger picture. And this was largely due to quite a, just a very few friends that I made where she sat me down and said, look, your passion about animals is fantastic. Your ideas of wanting to save every line is fantastic. But let's just look at the whole picture. I think to look at the whole picture, it's time to start just putting into straight words what I actually came to do in Africa. And the idea was really, I want to save every single animal especially predators, lions that are being shot, lions that are being poisoned, leopards, cheetahs, you name it, whatever it is. 
I would have wanted to create a place where I can put all these animals, save them. I would have wanted to go through farms and just tell people that they cannot do this. How could somebody kill lions? How could somebody kill them just because they're eating their cows? And and, and I just wanted to save them all and put them somewhere. And nothing in that passion that I have has ever changed. I, I love animals. I can't see an animal being tortured. I can't, I, it doesn't work for me. The time in Botswana and Maun and the friends who started explaining things to me, what happened was that I really started simply understanding and same as the small example with the Martins and the vehicles, what happened in Africa in the past sort of 50 to 100 years is that the impact of the modern world has obviously reached these areas too. It's not just this big wild paradise that we think of. Actually, on the contrary, large, large, huge areas are set aside for farming and not even to feed the few people that live in Botswana. A lot of that farming is actually set up in contracts with the European Union for beef production. Massive areas, areas the size of countries in Europe are simply just Put, put aside to be farmed and to be as grazing, grazing lands. And nobody wants any wildlife in there because we need the vegetation so that our cattle can feed on it, goats, donkeys, whatever else you have, all the livestock. And we definitely don't want predators there because they're going to be predating on something that is obviously somebody's livelihood. So when we look at the simple facts, and in future podcasts, we're going to go into a lot more detail on these kind of stories and what I learned about them. But but. We're not really at that stage right now, but what we need to understand is that there is a obvious relation between our vegetation that grows somewhere, the herbivores that live of it, and the herbivores are obviously food for the predators that we all want to save so badly, the lions and the leopards and all these amazing things such as cheetahs and wild dogs. And we don't want any of that to be killed. And we focus on the predators quite a lot with completely sort of forgetting everything that comes before it, which is, first of all, the habitat. If the habitat's not there, the lion's going to have a hard time. Now, a lion could live perfectly well in New York City if there was enough zebras running around for the lion to eat from in New York City. The problem is no zebra could live in New York City because there's not really any grass growing anywhere out of the concrete that the ground is plastered with. So no grass, no zebras, no lions. Pretty simple. If we look into simple figures, and these are just figures that are there, we can't change them and they're sad to look at. The habitat and looking at predator habitat, not just in space, but also in food availability, really has decreased by pretty much the same amount that our predator numbers have disappeared. So we haven't just lost 90% of Africa's lion population in the last decades or maybe 50, 60 years. We have actually lost... 90% of the lion's food, it also starts creating a bit of a conflict with the idea of just wanting to save every injured lion, every lion that may get shot because he's in a problem area, or by simply wanting to bring every lion that sits in a zoo anywhere on this earth to be released in Africa because we simply don't know where. And as I just said, we're going to go into this in a lot more detail. This will take some time. I will be doing more podcasts where we will discuss these scenarios in detail and make them a lot more obvious to anyone who's who's more interested. I think right now, the only thing that matters is that we understand that 
I started thinking that this idea that I have of saving animals just isn't that pure. It isn't that great. And although the emotion and the intention behind it is 100% pure, that the reality of executing this simple idea of putting a bunch of lines in an enclosure for some time after I save them from a bullet and then putting them back in a park may not work as well because actually there is nowhere in the park to put them. And yeah, obviously that whole scenario doesn't make life easy if this is all you, you've been wanting to do. However, through the friends I made in Maun, I got introduced to a farmer in the Kalahari area who has devoted one of his large properties into a sort of private wildlife area where he has a photographic lodge and behind the lodge he established a facility for problem animals. So exactly that kind of thing that I've been wanting to do anyways existed, although I never knew about it. And friends introduced me and we actually got into a deal to say let's start something together and the farmer gave me permission to use his property to start my own business under this company that I had started to start bringing guests to his to his ranch and obviously use the wildlife in the area and the attraction through this sanctuary for for wild animals to to bring guests there a small fee went to him. The rest of the money I could use to start helping to manage the lions, leopards and wild dogs that were in captivity at this place. And that's how I ended up getting my own business off the ground for the first time. It was thanks to friends I made and thanks to this generous farmer who decided to let me come and, and do this at his property. Silga arrived shortly after the initial talks at the beginning of, of my work with the Mudisa project at this ranch near Khansi, um, just next to the Central Kalahari Game Reserve. And her parents were caught as wild problem animals in a cattle ranch where they obviously had been killing livestock. And instead of getting shot, they were put at this facility where we started our camp. Now, unfortunately, those lions ended up having cubs inside one of the enclosures. And Although that wasn't planned, it just happened. And some of the cubs died, potentially because the other lions were just playing the, with them or for other reasons. We don't know because they simply disappeared. And it's possible that a lion cub dies because the mother inside an enclosure is not able to take the, the young away from the pride, from the family as she would normally do and only reintroduce them later after about six weeks of hiding them in the bush and caring for them just by herself. So if they're born in an enclosure where there are other lions around, it's very possible that those lions might just be bored or will definitely play with anything that, that is new in there. And if a 150 to 200 kilogram cat starts playing with a 1.5 kilo lion that still has its eyes closed and can't even walk, it's probably not going to survive that. And potentially that is what happened. But in any case, Sergo was not being fed anymore by her mother. She was just left under a bush and was getting very dehydrated and weak and sick. And after observing that for a while and in agreement, obviously, with the owner at the facility, I ended up saving her life by taking her and raising her by hand. And that is how Sergo arrived. 
yeah, for me, this has simply been a gigantic commitment because by taking her and doing this, I decided at the same time that I will be the one caring for her and that I do not want her to be turned into a toy for tourists. And yeah, since then I've been looking after her and since she was about 16 months old, we have completely stopped any interaction with other people because we figured it would become too dangerous. And yeah, Sega has learned to hunt. I've been taking her on many walks. We're today at a new place where she's getting her own reserve. And it's been the biggest responsibility I've taken in my life. And the aim is to give Sega the best life possible. And at the same time, although we are fully aware that Sega is not going to be released in a park where she has any potential of interacting with people which potentially would add, end in a deadly accident but we hope and we believe that the publicity that Serga is creating and giving us is something that we can turn into a much bigger story that actually can create an impact by aiding us in our work and therefore helping the wildlife the ecosystem and her wild relatives the other lions that live in the vast areas of the Kalahari and all of that we intend to do without Serga having to make any sacrifice. So we do our very best to give Serga the best life that is in any way possible under the circumstances that she grew up in. So the, the whole scenario at this ranch with with this sanctuary again and now ending up with a lion cub that I was hand raising was not exactly what I intended after I'd left Namibia. I had sort of set my mind on not having all of this interaction. It it just didn't seem completely agreeable to have too many tourists around all the animals and now I ended up being in the same sort of scenario having Serga. But I just have to to say at this stage that the owner of this facility basically gave me freedom to help him and manage this in an ethical way. And he said he didn't want all these lines. They keep reproducing. He doesn't know what to do. And it's, it's not a, it's not a good, it's not a good thing. They're supposed to be safe from being shot, but now they go in a cage and they become even more. And nobody knows where to put all these animals simply because it's not that simple as we spoke about just a little bit earlier. So I had the freedom to basically not, have these lions breed. And again, I just have to point out how amazing things are here in Africa. The same veterinarian who helped to get Serga right, who's obviously someone who loves animals, he started helping out quite a lot. And what actually happened is that somehow a jackal that had rabies brought rabies to the wild dogs who were held as part of this sanctuary at, at the ranch. And once the rabies broke out, and wild dogs are an extremely endangered species. We tried everything to stop it. The vet just showed up and started doing his job, which is a 350-kilometer drive for him just to show up there and then spend a few days to try and help us. And obviously, we somehow had to end up paying for his efforts, but he didn't ask for anything. He just said, look, we'll have to. it's something that has to be done, and we can talk about everything else later. It wasn't an issue. He gave very good rates, and he's really been tremendously helpful. At the same time, once he was down there, we used hormone implants and all the lionesses at this facility to simply basically put them on the pill to make sure that that scenario that just happened with Serga's litter and her siblings cannot repeat itself. 
and everything with the idea in the background that we don't want breeding at this facility that the idea is if there is a sanctuary for animals that we're going to be shot at a ranch those animals now have a safe home but there is nowhere to release them and there's definitely no point for them to reproduce in this captive scenario and Sega was just that thing in between before we got to do everything and having to do this on on over 30 lines and sorting out the wild dogs and everything it, it required a lot of money and although I was given the freedom to manage and make actually decisions after confirmation with the owner obviously the agreement with that still was that if I want if I'm wanting to do this I'm going to have to pay for it so it was all my business that I had to generate this money so yeah it just took a while and th thanks to the vet we we had an amazing companion who who actually helped to make this possible because god knows how many more litters would have come out of this captive scenario if he hadn't stepped in and said let's just get this done and you can pay me whenever whenever it fits overall I actually spent about six years at this ranch in the Kalahari and it's been an amazing learning opportunity just as much as a networking opportunity for me to, to do this. The owner himself has been quite an inspiration. He is a successful cattle farmer in Botswana just as much as a wildlife enthusiast and he's had the privilege of growing up in this country Plus, he's quite a bit older than me, so he's seen this place at times that I obviously had no chance to ever see it, and at times that I can only read in, in articles about today. There isn't even sort of like film records of much of what actually happened here. But he was already farming cattle in these areas back then when wildlife was so abundant and the stories were simply amazing. He grew up with the Bushmen and just learning from his stories because he could interpret in a way that say like western people like me understand these stories that the bushmen are telling was just fascinating so i i learned a hell of a lot about the simple day-to-day -day work on a on a wildlife area that's privately managed on yeah from simple things like fence work to slaughtering obviously we had to create food for the lions and we don't buy that in the supermarket he used to buy donkeys which are basically just standing along the streets in botswana quite a lot and somebody to go slaughter them so i i learned a lot of things that i thought i'd never be doing and at the same time it gave an opportunity to do a lot of networking with different people obviously many years working there we we did all kinds of things we ended up working with people doing vulture conservation we ended up working with professors bringing students through the camp just once a year for a couple of nights but we could explain things to them and Obviously, we got to turn over money. It gave me an opportunity to, to start something, and I am incredibly thankful for all of it. Yeah, today I'm in Africa over 10 years already, and it's about 14 years ago that I left Germany for Canada, then Namibia, and all of that stuff. So I've pretty much been away from home for quite a long time. And although I somehow never ended up going to university during this entire time, I think I managed to, to gain a pretty good understanding of the ecosystem in the Kalahari. And over these years, and not just through my ideas, actually through the people I met and not just researchers here, actually some of the guests that came to camp and, and communication with people, somehow I formed a plan in my mind on how I actually want to change something for wildlife in the Kalahari. I guess 
if we recap to the beginning of this, I was this naive German kid who came to Africa loving wildlife and mostly just wanting to pet a predator and saving one. And I've slowly started realizing that maybe that's not the way to actually go. Maybe that's not the way to actually save animals. Never changed my passion for actually working hands-on with them. And somehow I got lucky to actually do that. But also it became one of the biggest commitments I've ever taken in my life. But I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is that from this naive understanding of just wanting to come and, and catch every lion and save every lion that may be shot or poisoned and put them in a facility and keep them there and maybe let them breed so that we can make more and just release them back into this wild that must be here in Africa. I obviously learned quite a lot about why that does not exactly make sense and what may actually make a lot of sense to do for the Kalahari and for lions at the end of the day. And... That journey took me more than 10 years, so I figured maybe it's about time to do some podcasts and, yeah, just as my way of taking people onto this journey that I've got to experience so far. And I believe I'm extremely lucky to, yeah, be able to have had the life I've had so far. And also, I'm pretty sure that I'm lucky for, for the years that I have come here, no matter what happens. All the podcasts are going to in some way have to do with this experience in Africa and the overall goal is absolutely to take people on a journey that'll be interesting, entertaining, but above all eye-opening towards the real conservation efforts that are needed in Africa. So after the intro and mentioning Serga in this podcast and, and all of that, it's obvious that Serga is going to be spoken about more in the future and that's something that I want to share with everybody as much as possible. But before we really get there, I think it's important to go into the ethics about physical interaction with predators, specifically lions in Africa, but also just in general. Is it okay to book a holiday to go and bottle feed a lion cub somewhere? And what is the reality of this whole story? I do believe I have quite a lot of experience in this field right now and an opinion that may be worth listening to, but at least I have my personal stand on how I stand with it. And that's despite the fact that I have raised a lion and that I still have that animal and I do interact with it. And all of that next time on the Kalahari Diaries. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Kalahari Diaries. Did you enjoy the podcast? Fantastic. You can help me tremendously by subscribing and rating it on your podcast app. Leave a review and tell friends and family about it if you feel like it. If you want to know more about this story, go ahead and check out the website on sergeythelioness.com or follow me on social media. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Valgrüner, that is at V-A-L-G-R-U-E-N-E-R, and at Modisa Wildlife Project, where I'm sharing photos and videos from the Kalahari on a regular basis. I'm Val, and you've been listening to the Kalahari Diaries. Mm-hmm.